0: And welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and we have a wonderful show today. We'll be talking to John Rule about Ukraine. We'll be talking to Carl Ja about China and Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. We'll be talking to Matt Ho with a quick little update about his campaign. And we'll, of course, be going over some stories and headlines and media clips with Leslie Lee. Anyway, really excited, though, that you're all here and we're going to bring on my co-pilot, the smooth-voiced Leslie Lee. Leslie, welcome.
1: Hey, Kay, How's it going? Good. You? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Happy to be here.
0: Great. Happy to have you. You know, Leslie Lee, of course, is the host of the wonderful podcast Struggle Session. He's also the host of the culture show Colin. And I got some pop culture stuff I'm going to bring up with you, Leslie, which I'm excited to talk about. But first... We're gonna get to the news headlines. We're gonna get to some media clip. And the first story we're gonna bring is actually going to come in the form of an update from friend of the show, Matthew Ho, who is running for Senate in North Carolina. And he tried to get on the ballot as a Green Party nominee, and he had some troubles. So he's gonna tell us what was happening and what has just happened. And this is, of course, one of the examples of the Katie Halper Show bump. Yeah. Katie Halper Show bump has has struck again. Some good news. Yes. Matthew, welcome.
2: Hey, Katie. Hey, Leslie. Good to see you. I am incredibly grateful for the Katie Halper bump. I mean, that is just, I wasn't expecting it, and man, it hit me like a truck. What a great thing.
0: You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) You're welcome, world. No, but really, besides uh, using this as an opportunity to show off the power of the Katie Halbertshire bump, we are very happy for you. Can you tell people what just happened?
2: Sure. Uh Sure. so, if, if folks recall from when I was here last time, we, the North Carolina Green Party, had been petitioning to get recognized as a political party in North Carolina. We had to go out there and collect signatures. We collected more signatures than we needed—over uh, two thousand more valid signatures than were required. Uh, we submitted those signatures. We met all all the deadlines. Everything procedurally correct. And then, when the State Board of Elections went to certify us, they looked at irregularities, some minor issues, some concern, you know. Uh, uh, and they said, well, there are these things here, which means there could be more. And we can't tell you what that is, but there could be. So we're not going to certify you. And so we went through months of an investigation with the state board of elections where they kept saying things that there are thousands of fraudulent signatures, that there is a universe of fraud here we have to investigate. And so we sued and went to federal court. And this past Monday, at the most recent State Board of Elections uh, hearing, the State Board of Elections, uh, after concluding their investigation, uh, unanimously certified us. Both Democrats and Republicans voted for us. And you know the reason being was because after months of delay, after months of investigation, after months of saying that there was a universe of fraud, turned out there wasn't, which is what we've been saying all along. We had done nothing wrong. We weren't committing fraud. Our petitioning process had an integrity to it. But it was an effort by you know, the state and by the Democratic Party, because the Democratic Party is also involved in all this. That is, they just actually filed a lawsuit again to stop us yesterday. So we'll see where that goes. But, you know, we feel vindicated. Uh, We are at the point now where we're expecting a judge this week to rule in our favor since we've been certified and myself and the other candidates expect to be on the ballot either end of this week or beginning of next week.
0: So it's a step in the right direction, but you're still not home free.
2: Right, correct. We, we expect the judge to issue an order either tomorrow or Thursday putting us on the ballot. The State Board of Elections has said that they're not going to be opposed to that since they certified us. One of the things that happened was that there was a July 1st deadline for us to be certified by, and the State Board of Elections didn't hold their hearing, their first hearing on certification until June 30th. And even if we had been certified on June 30th, we had a host of other things we had to do, like hold a nominating convention, have our people register as Greens, candidates had to go and file. All that would have had to be done in less than 24 hours. So it was apparent that they were never going to certify us and that this months-long process was really just an attempt to delay us, hopefully back it up far enough that uh, you know the big deadline is the ballot printing deadline, which is, I believe, August 12th. So that was the hope. I feel like we've beaten one Goliath here, and now we have another Goliath in the form of the Democratic Party, and we'll see what they do with their vast resources. Like we said, we've been told they filed suit. We'll see where that goes. So we are vindicated. It's a good win. We expect more wins to come, but it's still a battle.
0: Great. And before you leave, I just wanted to ask you, as a former Marine, if you had any thoughts, as an anti-war veteran, if you had any thoughts on Nancy Pelosi's trip to China?
2: Oh, it's madness. It's absolute madness. It, it's the, the arrogance of the power. Gosh, I'd be here all night talking about this if you want me to. Now I'm going to try and walk my dogs after getting all spun up like this. This idea that we can continue pushing people, that we can continue pushing, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's, it's the Venezuelans, Iranians, and that there will be no harm, that there will be no blowback, or that the harm will be limited to Ukrainians or Yemenis right? That's where, the you know, Americans are, is just, uh, it's incredibly dangerous. It, it, it's historically uh, 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 bankrupt, you know, and, and it's, and, you know, it's despicable because the endangerment, look, for 25 years, the United States has been told by the Chinese, stop sending your aircraft carriers up to our coasts and humiliate, humiliating us. I mean, at some point, they are going to push back, And this is not in our in our inane media political structure we have here in this country. If you say something like that, you're automatically, uh, you know, I'm I'm a member of the Chinese Communist Party for understanding how another nation might act or react or trying to interpret their actions and words in a way that actually can be utilized to adjust to some form of real policy that won't be a, a mitigated disaster like the decades of war we've had. So, you know, Pelosi's Pelosi visiting there. I don't know why she's going, what the purpose is. Uh, I assume it's got something to do with her crooked husband. I mean, that's where I'm going to with that, because the members of the Biden administration are saying, don't go. So this is just madness. It's incredibly dangerous. And, uh, you know, for the people in D.C. who want a war, they just might get a war.
0: Well, thank you so much for your thoughts on that. We'll be talking about that more in the second half of the show with Carl Jha, but thank you again, Matthew, so much. And best of luck, and we'll keep updating people.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, guys. You guys have a good night. We'll see you.
0: Have a good dog walk. All right. And make sure you stay tuned, because we're going to be talking much more about China and Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi later on in the show. But, Leslie, how's your week going?
1: Oh, going good so far, so far. You know, same old, same old. Just enjoying the summer. Watch streaming TV. What you been watching, Katie?
0: I started... Okay, I watched two shows. One was not good, but was kind of... I don't want to say addictive, but good enough for me to keep watching. Bad enough for me to feel bad about it. And that show is Lincoln Lawyer. Not to be confused with the film with Matthew McConaughey, but it's based on a Michael Conley book, I guess, a series of books about a certain character. And it was on Netflix. It's okay. I mean, it's not very good, but I had fun watching it. It was kind of corny. But then... I started watching another show called "Keep Breathing," which was among the top ten Netflix shows about a young woman whose plane crashes and she's like in the Canadian wilderness. Couldn't watch it. Watched one and a half episodes.
1: Why can't you watch it?
0: It was just boring.
1: Oh, it wasn't the premise. It was oh was- no,
0: it wasn't the premise. It was boring. It was a little claustrophobic, also. Just which, which is funny. I guess claustrophobia isn't the right word because she's like literally out in the open with no one around. It's the opposite of claustrophobia, and yet still. It's like when you're scarily alone.
1: Maybe isolation.
0: Isolation, yeah, yeah. So I stopped that and I came across a very good show called You Don't Know Me. It's British and it's based on a book that I now want to read. And it's just it's just very good. It's on BBC and it's on Netflix. I don't know if it's Netflix produced, but it's on Netflix. And TTLD Forever writes in the comments, Katie, how exciting did you expect the show with the plane crash to be? Well, I'll have you know that the movie The Grey was, I thought, very good. With Liam Neeson.
1: Yeah, Con Air. There you go. Exciting uh, movie with a plane crash. Uh, yeah. Was it Fly of the Concorde is it is the movie where they have to rebuild the plane?
0: Alive, I never saw, but I'm assuming it has something to it. Yeah,
1: I think a few a few movies with, you know, plane crashes.
0: Yeah, and they have flashbacks. So both actually, both shows, both Keep Breathing, which I don't recommend, has a lot of flashbacks. And You Don't Know Me, which I do recommend, also has a lot of flashbacks. So... Every
1: show does that now. There, you cannot see a show that tells a story in a linear fashion anymore. And in fact, I'm glad we, you mentioned that because a show I watched recently was Rerun the City, which was the new um, David Simon joint after oh. The Wire, where he's going back and he's telling—this is a, the true story of the Gun Trace Task Force in Baltimore— who were, you know, these really crooked cops who just started robbing drug dealers just straight up. And, you know, people who weren't drug dealers, they would just rob them, too. They would just, like, pretend to seize the money, but they only turn in half the evidence or they keep all of it. They would deal drugs themselves, some of them. Um, and they all, like, recently went to jail. And, this, and, like, they were all busted, like, in a post, you know— Freddie Gray, rough ride world. So even in the reforms, you know, all of this, when the reforms were supposed to be happening and all the police were, you know, complaining about how they couldn't do their job anymore. And the show was about a lot about this. Um, Like they were, you just had a gang, a gang of cops who had all these complaints of violence against them, all these complaints. Like even like one of the things that exposed them was like, they were so notorious. They would get mentioned, and like trap rap songs, like rappers would talk about like, oh, this uh, detective so-and-so robbed me last week, you know, that sort of thing.
0: You know, you've made it.
1: Yes. And it's an interesting story and the show's pretty good. But as David Simon always does, he never really condemns the police that I did. The problem is always the fact that the, poli- the good police, the good cops don't have the right the funding that they need and they have to fight this drug war and they just have no choice and their hands are tied and that's why policing is so bad in theory like his his idea of police is always like is kind of like a TV detective who just goes around and solves like murders, you know, only deals with, you know, important crimes as opposed to what cops do for the vast majority of their time and careers, which is harass poor people, essentially. And the show like really tries, like a lot of people watched it and said, oh, this is even better than The Wire. This is more condemns the police even more than The Wire, but not really because as, uh, we started out this track because it doesn't tell the story in order. So you don't really get a good picture of how dirty these cops were and how pervasive everything was. And there was also one element where one cop who was implicated—
0: this Is this going to be a spoiler?
1: —for real life, I guess. There was a cop who was implicated in this who was supposed to be about to testify against some of these dirty cops. And he ends up killed in broad daylight somehow with his own service weapon— The police say, oh, it was probably a suicide, and he set it up in order to make it look like a murder. It was very strange. The show comes down on the angle where, oh, he just shot himself with his own gun, which I don't know quite lines up with the facts. Either way, it was not a settled issue when they filmed the show, and the show kind of leans in one direction. And that's a choice by uh, David uh, Simon.
0: Interesting. Well, speaking of David Simon shows Hollywood, Los Angeles, let's go to our first clip that we're going to be reacting to, which is a clip from Bill Maher talking to Sam Stein, who is an MSNBC contributor, and John McWhorter, who is a linguist.
1: Joe Biden is not a radical. I mean, he's not, he's just not. And he was put forward as a Democratic nominee precisely because- He bends into the radical. He he has bent, yes. And I think that's part of, that's part of what's been a problem from his President is that he's raised these expectations by, you know, saying, "Yeah, let's do all this." This two trillion dollar bill. Like social that. media makes all this different, though, and I think that yes. there's a possibility that social media could create a fearer. A united group of people constantly whipped up to stay together who were actually in this middle. It would be a matter of branding, but maybe those forces that, for example, kept Perot as a marginal figure could actually make a difference this time because of what Twitter- Perot, that's your reference? Ross Perot, yeah. Ross Perot? On the branding and the charisma. But I can imagine that maybe it would be different this time because of these things in our pockets and the way it unites groups together. It can create a new group, in other words. Well, I think- what would happen my prediction is you could have it like a sensible middle party and it would then what, what would happen is it would force the democrats to go back to being the sensible middle party Who claps for that? Who claps for for, people who have no— That means nothing. That statement means nothing. There's nothing to clap for. There's no meaning to that statement whatsoever.
0: Radical centrism.
1: We need a sensible middle party to force the Democrats to be the sensible middle party.
0: Yeah, as opposed to the rabid radicals that they are right now.
1: It was the applause sign, Katie. Of course, what are we talking about? We know showbiz. There was an applause sign. It lit up, and, you know, they did what they were
0: told. Let's hear some more of this. And they would, because they would see
1: that's where, you know, Biden, I mean, Biden reminds me of some grandfather. And when, when AOC and the woke people come into his office, and, he's just, he just goes along. He doesn't really understand it. It's like, Grandpa, can we have money to go play Fortnite? And, <laughs> and, and, and he's like... <laughs> 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 I don't even know Fortnite is free. Fortnite is free. That's why it's popular. Okay.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, I guess Bill Maher was just mocking the thing that he's claiming Biden is, which is, I guess, out of touch. But what is this bending to the knee? Like, where does he bend to radicals? What is his big bent to the left? I don't even know what these people would consider an example of that. It's insane. Imagine if he actually were, how much would they freak out if he actually did go in the direction of the left? I don't even know. He doesn't bend. He doesn't even move.
1: Yeah, I, don't, I, have no, I still have no idea. I, I feel like I ask this every week, like, what are they talking about? Where is this radical, this woke left that's taken over the Democratic Party and the campuses and all this stuff? I have no idea.
0: He hasn't done anything radical. And the only thing radical about him is how radically inert he is. His inertia is radical. His refusal to do things is radical. His status quo stance is radical. His centrism is radical. He's a radical centrist, which is a thing. All right, so let's play this clip. We're gonna watch a discussion about Joe Manchin. This is interesting.
3: President Biden says he plans to run for re-election in 2024. You have not yet committed to supporting him in 2024. Do you think President Biden
1: deserves a second term?
4: Jake, I'm not getting involved in any election right now. 2022, 2024, I'm not speculating on it. President Biden is my president right now. I'm gonna work with him and his administration to the best of my ability to help the people in my state of West Virginia and this country. And we have agreements, we have respectful agreements, but we respect each other and we work through them. So this is what people are upset about. Everything's about the next election. This is about today's inflation rates that's killing people. We have got to get the inflation rate down. We have got to have an energy policy that works for America. And we're not going to raise taxes, but people should be paying their fair share, especially the largest corporations in America that have a billion dollars of value or greater. Can't they pay at least 15% so that we can move forward and be the leader of the world and the superpower that we are?
0: So, yet another person refuses to endorse. Joe Biden.
1: <laughs> I mean, I I don't know what to say. I want to make fun of it, but I feel like this is something that Democrats do kind of regularly. Like they did this to Obama too. I feel like if you go back in the archives and not deliberately like Bernie Sanders did, but if you ask some of the centrist Democrats if they they would you would ask them, are you going to support? Obama for reelection you know if the heat was on for some reason they would kind of be like well I don't want to talk about the election you know I want to talk about this or that the other I mean but this just shows like the Democrats aren't really like a party like a political party they're like just some sort of pyramid scheme that everybody's they're like Amway yeah like Amway I don't know who the boss of Amway my boss is going to be in six months who cares I'm about the money
0: What's funny is that it's happening from both ends because you have Manchin not committing and then you have like Corey Bush and AOC not committing.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Now we have another clip that also relates to Joe Manchin. This, of course, is about Joe Manchin finally making a deal with Senator Chuck Schumer for a climate bill, which is based on lots of terrible things like drilling. No surprise there. It's not actually very good for the environment or the earth. But let's see how people were talking about this on CNN.
2: Ana Navarro, CNN contributor, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, and former senior advisor to Senator Manchin, Jonathan Cott. Welcome to you all. Jonathan, I want to start with you. A lot of folks were taken by surprise that this deal got done at the 11th hour, Republicans feeling burned. Were you surprised? Did you know this was coming down the pike? I didn't know it was coming, but I was not surprised because I believe Joe Manchin, when he said he wasn't walking away, I know his team was working on it the whole week leading up to it. I think it is shocking in D.C. when something this big doesn't leak out. Um, You have reporters all over the hill every day, behind every corner, asking questions. So I was a little surprised that it wasn't known, but I wasn't surprised that he kept working on it and got it done. It's just who he is and what he tries to do. Promises made. I mean, Abdul, do progressive Democrats owe Joe mention an apology for demonizing him these past few months? Well, What?
0: Who asked that?
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
0: Do they owe him an apology? Because
1: in the 11th hour, after so many other things have fallen apart, and by the way, he decided to do one thing you like. Well, don't you owe him an apology? I mean, isn't he proven he's part of the team? That's why it's not a political party of any real meaning or distinction. It's like you can do one thing at the end after it's already probably too late to do anything about the Democrats' chances at the midterms and kind of turn the ship around after it's already too late. Now you decide to do something and you deserve credit for it. And apologies, according to CNN.
0: Yeah, well, let's keep playing that clip because Abdul Sayed actually lays out exactly why that question is so ridiculous.
2: Promises made. I mean, Abdul, do progressive Democrats owe Joe Manchin an apology for demonizing him these past few months? Well, no. Look, this is how the governing process works. You've got activists and organizers who've been pushing and pressuring. In fact, Joe Manchin himself said, and I quote, that the dogs came after me after uh, there was a lot of righteous anger after he'd pulled out the first Mm -hmm. time. And so this shows that our democratic process only works if you work out. And then there are uh, people who have been out there fighting on climate legislation, fighting on a more fair uh, approach to taxation who really do share the credit with Joe Manchin on this. And so no apologies needed, but this is how the governing process
0: works. If anything, that shows why they had to call him out. I mean, to the extent that this is a victory, and again, this is not a great deal, and I think we're going to learn more and more about this deal and may not even go through. But even if it does, to the extent that it's any progress, it's because, in part, I mean, I think that, that also there's some story rumors about some really rich people calling him to get him to do something, But the idea that the takeaway is to apologize is so absurd. And, you know, there's some weird pathology around Joe Manchin and apology tours that people think he's owed. First of all, Manchin sees himself as a victim, apparently, because he said in an interview that he was ostracized and victimized for nuking Build Back Better. Ostracized and victimized. Poor guy. We should start a GoFundMe for him so he can go seek the therapy he clearly needs.
1: Think about the real victims, the senators in all of this. Yeah,
0: who will speak for the senators? But back in October, Manu Raju, who is the chief congressional correspondent at CNN, asked Bernie Sanders if he was going to apologize to Joe Manchin because he had written an op-ed criticizing Manchin. So people are very protective of Joe Manchin. There's a tweet asked if he apologized to Manchin for the op-ed he wrote in West Virginia. Sanders said, why would you ask me that? told about Manchin's criticism, he said, I thought it was a pretty good op-ed. Sanders said the meeting went very well. So yeah, maybe he could send Joe Manchin a fruit basket.
1: Yeah, something, you know, something some flowers for his and Flowers, yeah.
0: So awful what they've done to him. Let's go to another clip. This is from last week, but I wanted to react to it because I have a personal relationship with one of the people in it. So this is from MSNBC. This is about two Congresswoman, Carolyn Maloney, and Congressman Jerry Nadler are running against each other because of redistricting.
2: Congresswoman Maloney, you really are launching an attack of sorts on Congressman Nadler by saying, you know, heralding your bona fides when it comes to abortion rights. Do you think that he has not been as strong of an advocate as he should have been during his time in Congress?
5: I think uh, women uh, fight harder, and when a woman's at the table, the agenda changes. And uh, uh, change doesn't come easily, but it will come if you never give up. And women will never give up on the rights for women. Uh, Congressman Malone, let me let, let me press you a bit on that. What do you actually mean by the claim that women
3: fight harder? I mean, let's let's I'm asking the question in, in the context of a broader kind of. Criticism of the Democratic Party as not fighting hard enough in this in this particular environment. How will you you distinguish yourself uh, as someone who will fight aggressively uh, uh, in light of the forces that seem to be trying to undermine uh, our democratic polity in this moment? So, A, explain to me what you mean by women fight harder and B, what is the nature of the fight that you understand? that's in front of you, in front of all of us, in light of the forces that are trying to undermine the republic at this moment.
0: So shout out to, we'll keep playing the clip, but just shout out to Eddie Glaude Jr. for basically saying, what are you talking about? Besides invoking the fact that you're a woman, women are for women's rights, women fight harder. What are you talking about? He's both challenging the weaponization of identity politics and also the way that Democrats hide behind and pretend that they fight for things that they don't fight for. So let's hear her response.
3: They're trying to undermine the republic at this
5: moment. Well, I I think the the fight for abortion rights, uh, for a clean environment, and and then uh, for gun safety. Um, I think that uh, uh, that I've been rated repeatedly by outside uh, rating organizations. GovTrack and the uh, Committee for Effective Congress is first, second, or third most effective uh, member for getting things done, actually accomplishing things. Not just talking, but getting things done. And I have been in the uh, fights in the street, just got arrested last week, or week before last, and, and also in the back room. And I can tell you in the back room, when the doors are closed and the cameras are off, the people who stand up and fight to the death for women's rights are women. And we need more women. We're half the population. We're underrepresented in Congress. We need more Democratic women there in the fight every single day.
0: Fighting to the death. All right. Now, I want to give you guys a sense of just some examples of Carolyn Maloney, her feminism. So here, let's look at the way she spoke out for women's rights through her clothing at the Met Gala. So if you could zoom in on that, this is Carolyn Maloney at the Met Gala, and she's wearing an ERA dress, Equal Rights Amendment dress.
1: The Matt Geller, I got to say, I'm not loving the color pattern. The stitching seems uh, amateurish. I mean, is that a him I don't, I don't know what's going on. The material selection is just a little bit off. You know, you have something there with the kind of the shawl cape coming down, but then it ends up being just a little bit too busy and just becomes a mess down the front.
0: It is busy. It's supposed to give off a, a suffragette vibe, the sewing, the tailoring of it, like a la Mary Poppins. But the cape thing, I think, is a little distracting. I mean, I get maybe that it gives it a superhero vibe. You, Leslie, of course, would know that more than I.
1: Yes, maybe that's the problem. It's less of a a dress and more of a costume.
0: Yeah. So let's look at her showing her girl boss power back in 2001 as a member of Congress, where she still is. But I mean, as opposed to she wasn't at the Met Gala. Here she is in the actual house.
5: Out to attend school. Women and girls cannot venture outside without a burqa which they are forced to wear. It's an expensive, heavy, cumbersome garment which covers the entire body.
1: Is the expense her concern? Like is she yeah, just asking to like
0: subsidize them?
5: Subsidize burkas, yeah. And it includes a mesh panel covering the eyes. The veil is so thick that it's difficult to breathe. The little mesh opening for the eyes makes it extremely difficult to even cross the road. Women must be escorted by a male relative to be allowed to leave their homes. Women are not allowed to seek health care from male doctors, even in emergency situations. Female doctors and nurses are not permitted to work So women and girls are dying from treatable illnesses. They have no access to society or food for their families and themselves. Let's be clear, we are at war with the Taliban, strictly because they're harboring Osama Bin Laden and because they are involved in terrorism against the United States. Still, this just war, which we have no choice but to wage, has contributed to a humanitarian tragedy of staggering proportions. Our commitment to helping the innocent people of Afghanistan must never waver. There are now 1.5 million Afghan refugees along the Pakistan border. More than half of them are women. 66,000 are pregnant. Winter is imminent. I salute the Bush administration for How's balancing the, war with the
1: compassion. For dropping food. Like, what does the burqa have to? What does the, what does the clothing they wear, have to do with 1.5 million refugees on the border? Like, what is she talking about?
0: Because too many of them are wearing burkas.
1: So, do we not care about the men? Because I guess they're in more comfortable clothing.
0: Yeah, they don't have to spend the money. So, she's going to really bring it home right now.
5: I salute the Bush administration for balancing war with compassion, for dropping food as well as bombs. Even in war, we are showing a regard for human life and human rights that the Taliban will never know. The good news is that the Taliban's days are numbered.
0: All right. I'm not sure that aged well, given that that was in
1: 2001. 2001. Wow.
0: I guess their days
1: they were numbered in a certain sense but it was a high number. It was a very very high number.
0: And they're back in power. So, you know, take the number of days between then and now and that's the number. Then you can add another day tomorrow. But anyway, that's the kind of substantive policy work that Carolyn Maloney does obviously as you can tell from her answer. She didn't have anything to say. I think she felt hamstrung by not having multiple costumes on hand to change into. I think she would have loved to have responded with a costume change. Full disclosure, I I do want to read you a text that I sent the other day to a friend. Speaking of telling things out of order and nonlinear, let's just say I sent this text to a friend and I was in the subway in New York City and I texted my friend, Carolyn Maloney is sitting next to me on a subway platform bench eating a pepperoni slice. I almost tripped her by accident. Well, she almost tripped on me. Her pizza smells amazing. It's true, ladies and gentlemen. I was in a New York City subway, sitting down, minding my own business, when a woman almost tripped over me. And then I looked at her, and it was Carolyn Maloney, and she was not wearing a mask. Oh. She was eating a pizza on the platform. And she even took it onto the train with her.
1: She was eating on the train in this era? In the monkeypox era? Yeah. Could not be me.
0: It was, let's see, when did I send that text? That was on July 9th. I got Oof. the receipts.
1: That's, yeah. that's full MP era. That's full MP era.
0: MPA. Anyway, that's a kind of, and to be fair, Jerry Nadler sucks too, the guy she's running against. He's terrible in Israel. I mean, they all are terrible in Israel. And he also called Russiagate the new Pearl Harbor. So I'm not endorsing either one of them. They're going to have to do something good to get a Katie Halber Show endorsement.
1: Yes.
0: Well, Leslie, any final words? Thanks for watching these clips with me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And as always, make sure to check out Struggle Session at patreon.com slash struggle session or sesh.show. Get all our podcast episodes. We talk about tons of great topics. We just did a couple of good episodes on some nice adult animation from back in the day. Maybe you remember those old movies, Katie. They used to come back in the 70s and the 80s. And they would film people, but then they would draw like a cartoon over it. It was called Rotoscope. But the movie I watched was The Spine of Night, which stars Lucy Lawless. You're a good friend. Oh, yeah. And uh, we talked about that on the show. And it's a Rotoscope movie. So they filmed people doing it seven years ago. And then they drew all this cool stuff on top of it.
0: Well, cool. Yeah, definitely check it out. And thanks again, Leslie. All right.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Peace.
0: Peace. All righty. We are very excited to bring on our next guest, John Rule, an Australian American journalist living in Washington, D.C. He writes for the Independent Media Institute, is a contributing editor to Strategic Policy, runs the Geopolitics General Channel on Roundtable Media, and his book, Budget Superpower, will be out later this year. So, John, welcome.
3: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, of course. Thanks for coming. You've written a bunch of pieces about Ukraine. I wanted to ask you, the first question I had was about something that people are talking about a lot, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. You have more detail on it because you actually are writing about these things. But the role of energy, the role that energy plays in the war in Ukraine.
3: Well, yeah, Ukraine has been a transit country for Russian gas to Europe for decades now, about 40 percent of the gas to Europe. From Russia, flowed through Ukraine, so it's always been a important country for Russia to sort of have some control over. Um, But you know, there's also oil pipelines and nuclear power as well, which are hugely important for Europe. And a lot of the oil comes from Russia. It also comes, and a lot of the uranium for the nuclear power plants all comes uh, from Russia. not all, but a lot of it comes from Russia. Uh, so if you look at the sanctions, even in 2014, up until now as well, they've been pretty hesitant to, Europeans have been pretty hesitant to sort of stop that flow of energy from Russia because they're so dependent on it. And while they're trying very hard currently to offset that dependency, it's it takes years, it takes decades And so they're they're sort of caught in a bind right now, the Europeans are.
0: And what about what Russia did at the beginning and what what they're continuing to do? And how much of the problem are sanctions causing here?
3: The biggest problem, I guess, is that Russia is voluntarily cutting off uh, natural gas to some countries. Uh, You know, with the Nord Stream pipeline, I think it's at 20 percent capacity right now. And as winter approaches, that's going to cause a lot of problems because these are the months where Europeans try to stock up on natural gas, and they're unable to do that. So it's hard to tell exactly what uh, the real consequences will be in a few months um, because the need isn't spiking just yet. But as it gets colder, people want to heat their homes. They need to use it. I mean, it's not just for heating homes. It's for natural gas I'm talking about. It's not just for heating homes. It's really important in industry and a bunch of other things. So if they run out of supplies, that's going to be a huge, huge uh, consequence for Europe and countries like Germany in particular.
0: And what do you think the media is missing when it talks about this conflict?
3: I guess a lot of it would be the warnings Russia gave about NATO enlargement. A lot of the media seems to be focused on this as just uh, somewhat coming out of the blue. But for years, Russia has been saying that you know it regards Ukraine as its own sphere of influence. And while that's not okay, it's still a world power and it's able to strike as a world power. So the warning signs were all there. And the West sort of walked right into it because they're not expending any physical bodies or anything. They're they're doing sanctions, you know, there's economic ramifications, but there's no boots on the ground. So for them, they have relatively little skin in the game. And there's also the sense I feel that a lot of people know that Ukraine probably won't win, but it's a war that will help bleed Russia out in a sense. And I don't think that's talked about that much.
0: Yeah, to me, that's one of the most disturbing aspects of this is that everyone is speaking about, you know, the the U.S. media and politicians are all talking about how much they care about Ukrainians and Ukrainian civilians. And what's becoming clearer and clearer is that this is a war that is about, as you said, bleeding Russia, but that's literally bleeding Ukrainians. I mean, it's like using them. They're happy to see Russia and Ukraine fight to the last Ukrainian. Yes. Which is something that, again, I don't think the media talks about at all. Yeah. So what kind of interest does the U.S. have in that? Or do Western powers have in that? Like, why do they want to bleed Russia?
3: Russia would like to have Ukraine as a buffer state at the at the very least, as in it wouldn't be in the EU or NATO. Um, but uh, the U.S. wants to weaken Russia because it still dominates a lot of Eurasia and if you weaken it in ukraine you might weaken russia's influence in belarus and Moldova, or mongolia across central asia and because of that uh there's a desire to weaken it in ukraine i think there's also uh a sort of a cold war mentality that has lasted through the end of the cold war up until now that you know russia's this big evil empire needs to be defeated um and so there's a natural sort of zombie like uh, trance to do that um, in US foreign policy circles, or some of them. So weakening Russia is just a natural part of all those things.
0: You also write about the food insecurity and how the war in Ukraine is exacerbating that. And before getting into the way that Ukraine's exacerbating it, or the conflict in, in Ukraine is exacerbating that, why do we have food insecurity in the first place in this world? Like, don't we have the means not to have it?
3: We do, but there's a system of cheap food uh, that's been sort of uh, globalized over the past few decades. So, there's actually very few countries that are uh, food self sufficient, that they can grow enough food for their own populations. And so, you have countries like Ukraine, which are relatively poor in Europe, but they're able to get a huge amount of money by uh selling food to other countries uh also the global population has boomed over the last few decades too and so while food tech food growing technology has increased as well uh it hasn't kept up with population growth in most countries so it's just one of those things not every country is going to be able to afford or be able to grow their own food and so they rely on other countries to do it also because it's cheap and they have the means to do it. And that's obviously been thrown on its head now because Russia and Ukraine are both giant food exporters. And uh, Russia is willing to use that card because it's one of the few cards it has against the West. And so, you know, you have, uh, I forget exactly who said it, but they said food insecurity. One of the Russian officials, food insecurity was something they were going to use against the West because... It's one of their few cards they can play.
0: And what do you predict is going to happen in
3: this war? It's very difficult to say. A breakthrough could happen as soon as the West stops supporting Ukraine. What I feel is more likely is that it will die down in intensity, but it'll continue for potentially years. And neither the US or Russia really has a way out of it because they've thrown so much rhetoric and resources into their own side that backing out would be a political suicide specifically for Russia but also for the US as well. So I think it'll go on for a few years. How many years? I'm not sure, but um we'll see. Obviously Russia has taken over the most pro-Russian parts of Ukraine. Uh there's the possibility that it might go all the way to Moldova, which still has a relatively pro-Russian population. Uh, up until the Moldovan borders, Um, but we'll see. But for the most part, I believe it's going to be, it'll die down in intensity, but it won't uh, be concluded.
0: And what about the privatization of the conflict in Ukraine? You have an article about that. Can you talk about the presence of private military and security companies?
3: Yeah, so Russia's been using private military companies in Ukraine since 2014. And they've just, up until the invasion of Ukraine, they played an enormously important role in carrying out Russian military policy. The U.S. obviously has their own private military companies, the West does, and it's an increasingly popular conflict model because it is cheaper and it also draws attention away from national governments um, using their own militaries. So I'm hoping the U.S. and the West don't put their own private military companies in Ukraine, but uh, there's certainly a possibility that they will, and Russia will continue to rely on them as well. And they've, it's just a, it's a conflict model that is increasingly prevalent in 21st century conflicts, and the role they play in Ukraine has been evident since 2014, and it's only going to
0: grow. And what about on the Ukrainian side? They have their own private military
3: companies, but they're all supported pretty much entirely by the West in terms of funding and equipment right now. Because Ukraine had all Soviet-era weaponry for a long time, Russian weaponry. And so to change your entire military takes years, and they've been doing that successfully since 2014. But uh, they still rely on a lot of uh, Russian tactics and. Russian you know military uh, infrastructure but there's a possibility that you know Ukrainian private military companies which do exist and have existed for years will also take a more prominent role as well as the role of militias and other militant groups as well which is what we saw basically from 2014 uh, until 2022 on the Russian side a mix of private military companies and militant groups but they'll all work together with the Russian government forces now
0: Someone's asking, what types of operations did these companies carry out? Uh, It
3: depends. There's a company called Wagner, which, uh, you know, had a role in taking Crimea. But a lot of them as well, Wagner is responsible for keeping some of the pro-Russian militant groups in line. And their nickname is the cleaners in Ukraine. And what they do is they've been believed to be responsible for some assassinations of uh, pro-Russian militant leaders who'd kind of fallen afoul with the Kremlin. Um, but they fight directly on the front lines. They provide support, security, um, guarding, guarding infrastructure, guarding uh, natural resource infrastructure. So really uh, all that the military does, they do as well. They just don't have access to uh, necessarily as high-tech weaponry like jets and everything like that.
0: You write for Globetrotter, which is a site that Vijay Prashad writes for also. Do you also get smeared as a Putin apologist? I haven't yet
3: that I know of, but I'm sure someone has. But, you know, that just comes with the territory. So,
0: You will will also because you appeared on this show. So you're welcome for that. Yeah. And then you have a piece on the space race and how this has affected the space race. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well,
3: throughout the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had, even during the worst times of the Cold War, they had cooperation in space. And that was one of the few areas where there was positive, uh, constructive relations between the two superpowers. With the launch of the war in Ukraine, the European Space Agency, NASA, have all sort of cut ties with uh, Roscosmos, which is the Russian Space Agency. And that includes on the International Space Station, uh, which Russia has said it's going to make its own space station. It had its own space stations in the Soviet Union. But uh, it's just a, it's a tragedy because space exploration has been a great uh, example of cooperation between great powers, even if there was tension on Earth. Uh, but I feel that Russia will probably lean more on China now for space exploration And we'll lose a lot of expertise uh, without them. And unfortunately, it will likely lead to growing militarization of space, which up until now was sort of subdued by the cooperation between the Russian Space Agency and Western Space Agencies. Now that that's been severed, I think, unfortunately, we'll see more militarization of space.
0: What is that going to look like? I believe right
3: now there's only four countries that have developed the technology for anti-satellite weaponry. And that's the U S China, Russia and India. But if you have Russia cooperating, say with Iran, that might give Iran the possibility to strike Western satellites. Um, And, you know, there's just an increasingly amount of satellites in orbit and you might be able to strike private companies or private company satellites, or other national satellites. So uh, that'd be the main thing for now. Anti-satellite weapons. Which could completely upend, you know, communications on Earth.
0: Kind of scary stuff. Yeah. And what is your book about?
3: My book is called Budget Superpower, and it's how Russia challenged the West with an economy smaller than Texas. And it just goes through... It's broken down into eight chapters and it goes through uh, each tool, each uh, avenue or approach that Russia has that allows it to compete with the West with such limited economic power.
0: How did they do that?
3: Depends. Uh, The first chapter, I focus on military strength and I break it down into three parts, which is US and Russian conflicts in the 21st century and why Russia's up until Ukraine have been relatively successful. So that's uh, the 2008 Russian-Georgian war, the 2014 military action in Ukraine, and the 2015 intervention in Syria versus uh, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, and in Libya. Uh, The second part, I go through uh, weapons exports, which are huge. uh, I mean, if you look at China's military strength over the last few decades. Part of the reason why it's grown so strong is due to Russian weapons. Um, and that's a, you know, it's a objective of Russia to spread U.S. forces uh, thinly around the world. And by sending weapons to rogue states or China, it helps uh, spread U.S. attention militarily around the world. Uh, then military bases uh The global global military presence um, around the world. Uh, Chapter 2, it's intelligence. Chapter 3 is uh, the Russian world, so influence through Russian minorities, Slavic minorities, and the Russian Orthodox Church. Chapter 4 goes through media, political influence, and cyber warfare. Chapter 5 goes through the use of organized crime, militant groups, and private military companies. Uh, Chapter 6 is energy. So mainly oil, natural gas, nuclear power. Chapter seven is uh, its economic power. Even outside of uh, energy, it still has some economic power. And then chapter eight is how it's developed a global strategy to confront the U.S. um, and how it it carries that out. So it's out at the end of 2022. I think I've explained it horribly, but I promise it's a a good book and uh, budget superpower.
0: You'll have to come back on to talk about it when it's out. Any final words? Any final thoughts?
3: I'm just interested to see what's going to happen with Pelosi in Taiwan right now. I think part of the response of China from this will not only be uh, China increasing its rhetoric and attention against the U.S., but it'll result in more support for Russia in Ukraine. And I don't think that's something the U.S. has prepared for. So we'll see.
0: All right. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about that in our next chunk of the show. So thank you, John, for coming on.
3: No problem. Thank you.
0: Sure. Bye. OK, so without any further ado, bringing on Carl Zah, who is the host of the Silk and Steel podcast, focusing on China and surrounding regions, history, politics and culture. Welcome, Carl, making your debut on the Katie Halper Show. Welcome.
4: Hi, Katie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Of course. Yeah. Really excited to have you on. Wanted to just ask you to talk about what's happening right now in China, in Taiwan. And before getting into what's happening now with Nancy Pelosi, could you just set up the history and significance of Taiwan? Because I think a lot of people have no idea what it is, where it is, whose it is.
4: I'll try to be brief. So Taiwan was uh, Chinese territory until 1895, when China was defeated by Japan in the first Sino-Japanese War. And, uh, as a result, China ceded the territory of Taiwan to Japan, then that was reversed after, after 50 years of Japanese occupation, that was reversed after the result of World War II, because as a, as a end of settlement for World War II, Japan was supposed to give up all the territory outside of its home islands. Um, including all the territory it has taken from neighboring country before, and, and the problem, though, uh, the, the Treaty of San Francisco in 1951 that was supposed to end the war with Japan, United States specifically excluded the country of China and Korea from attending the, the uh, signing of Treaty of San Francisco because the excuse United States government used was, oh, China is in the midst of a civil war, which it was. I mean, uh, the, um, at the... So Taiwan was returned to China after 1945. But then China immediately was involving a civil war between the communists and the KMT side. And the communists eventually won out. And the KMT government, uh, the previous government in China then fled to Taiwan, where they keep on pretending they're still the sole legitimate government of all of China, which United States went along with that fiction until 1971. And in fact, um You know, as as Mao was uh, supposed to, uh, was about to send the People's Liberation Army across the Taiwan Strait in 1950 to finish the Chinese Civil War, Korean War broke out in in June 1950. And as a result of the Korean War, before the Chinese intervention in the Korean War, Truman issued a directive to send the U.S. 7th Fleet into the Taiwan Strait. That prevented uh, the Chinese uh, People Liberation Army to cross the Taiwan Strait because in 1950 China didn't uh, the, the People's Republic of China didn't have a navy. They, they they could there's nothing they could do when U.S. sent its aircraft carrier into the Taiwan Strait in 1950. So as a result. The, the the Chinese civil war enter into kind of suspended phase. Uh, you know the, the the remnant government uh set up their ramparts on Taiwan. So this is the, the we're we're dealing with this legacy right now. And 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 the U.S. has always intervened. In fact, right. Some people are calling the current crisis the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis because we already had at least three. And in the first two Taiwan Strait crises in 1954 and 1958, United States government had plans to nuke mainland China. This was just, this just came out like a couple of years ago. Um, and, and U S because at the time it looks like uh, mainland China was about to take a couple offshore islands, not even. Taking Taiwan, just offshore islands about a few kilometers off the coast of mainland China, that was held by Taiwan, uh, KMT party, and at that time, United States had a uh, Pentagon has a plan if um, if the PLA does cross uh, to take the Kinmen Islands, for example, they would they would drop nuclear bombs onto mainland China to stop this uh, invasion. Um, but the but Mao never actually sent PLA over, so that. The nuke scenario, we never saw the nuke scenario, but the plan was in place. And in fact, uh, since 1958, U.S. has placed nuclear tipped missiles as well as nuke on Taiwan. And during um, during during the Vietnam War, there are about 30,000 U.S. Uh, military f- personnel were stationed in Taiwan. This all changed with uh 1971 visit of Nixon. So Nixon signed the Shanghai communique with uh, with uh, Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai in Shanghai, which says United States recognize the Taiwan issue, uh, you know, both sides of the Taiwan Strait uh, agrees are, you know, they're all Chinese and 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 Taiwan issue is a is a issue to remain to be solved by the Chinese of both sides of the Taiwan Strait. So so after that, U.S. has pulled out its military and its nukes from Taiwan since 1971. And the Shanghai communique forms a foundation for the Sino-American relation uh, relation going on forward. Um, What we're seeing right now is U.S. is walking back from the Shanghai communique signed by Nixon in 1971, uh, because since since. U.S. and China has established a relationship in 19, normalized relationship in 1979. Ever since uh, U.S. only recognized the government in Beijing as the sole legitimate government of China, Uh, U.S. do not recognize Taiwan. Uh, You know, they have, there's no official U.S. embassy in Taiwan. There's a so-called de facto embassy. They call the American Institute on Taiwan. Um, And what we have seen since the Trump administration, though, there is a creeping uh kind of uh, us us is trying to to revert is trying to revert back to the cold war era situation uh under trump us actually sent marines back into taiwan under the pretense that the american institute in taiwan is sort of us diplomatic uh, uh, uh institution which need us marines to guard it which is totally unnecessary but th- th- they're just doing it to see China's reaction, this is a, a series of provocations that U.S. have done to 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 provoke China and to increase tension in the area. But in our corporate media, uh, China is the one that's painted as aggressor. But I, I I want to remind people there there has been peace across the Taiwan Strait since the late 1980s. Uh, you know, ever since I was born, uh, I, I grew up in China in 1980s. I mean, this is ever since that time. Actually, the relationship, uh, the the tension has calmed down. The trade across the both sides have grown. Right now, there are about 2 million Taiwanese uh, people studying, working on mainland China, you know, out of a total population of 20, 25 million. Uh, So, so, I mean, there's a lot of cultural exchange going on. and, and And in 1990, finally, the, the, the Taiwanese government lifted the restriction on travel between direct travel between uh, mainland China and Taiwan before, uh, in 1980, I remember Taiwanese businessmen, they have to travel to Hong Kong, uh, as a stopping point in order to go to, go to mainland China. Uh, but now they can fly directly across the Taiwan Strait. But what us has done, especially with what Pelosi has done is, is not, um, so the White House spokesperson John Kirby has said oh China is reacting to a long standing US policy. That that's a bald faced lie because <laughs> there has been no speaker of house visit to Taiwan for 25 years since last visit was New Gingrich back in 1997. And in fact the US had Congress had to pass a law in 2018 under Trump administration to allow high level visits called the Taiwan Travel Act to allow high level US official to visit Taiwan so US has been taking serious of steps to kind of normalize its uh um <laughs> the, the, the client the normalize the status of Taiwan as a US client state basically and and this is what uh China is um voices opposition against. And that's why they raised the, a big concern about uh, the Pelosi visit, because, uh, you know, it's true that back in the 50s, Eisenhower, Nixon, they all visited um, Taiwan. But that's, that's back in the day when U.S. was uh, under this pretense that the government in Taipei is the sole legitimate government of China. Since 1979, since the normalization of ties between China and U.S., uh, you know, no U.S. presidents have visited Taiwan and the Speaker of the House is second in line to, well, Pelosi is second in line to succeed Biden in case something happened to both Biden and Kamala Harris. So, so she's pretty high up there and she is going there not as a private citizen. She's representing the U.S. government. She's traveling on a U.S. Air Force plane, C-40C, Uh, You know, it's uh, normally a congressman travel to Taiwan previously have been traveling on commercial airliner or private jet. Uh, 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 But if Nancy Pelosi is traveling on a U.S. Air Force asset. So this is this is quite, quite different. And and it's uh, it's. In a, on a symbolic level, at least. And, and you know, Chinese understood this. Um, you know, I don't know how many American audience understood it because we're swamped by, by kind of disinformation and propaganda over here.
0: Yeah. So why do you think Pelosi is doing what she's doing? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show hear the rest of that discussion please join the patreon at patreon.com slash the katie helper show again that's patreon.com slash the katie helper show if you like the show please leave us a five star review on itunes and as always we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners our show is produced by me katie helper brad bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show and our theme song is by the band cordova see you next time